All right, we're starting a brand new series, The Gospel for Real Life. We're thinking through the reality that the good news of the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for us, is so significant that it actually ought to shape everything that we do. Everything that we do. So for weeks together, what we'll do, Lord willing, we'll open the scriptures and we'll look at a particular topic or issue and we'll think through, what does the gospel have to say about this? What does the gospel have to say about this? This week, we're starting uh, in Philippians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, please do. We're starting in Philippians chapter 1. And um, I'll read the passage here in just a moment, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27, reads like this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. And now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, we commit our time to you right now. And we're asking that you, by your spirit, through your word, would speak to us. Individually, Lord, would you speak to us and give us a word for how we might live. As a church community, Lord, would you speak to us and show us what you want us to be like. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I think this is an obvious passage. It's, for me, it's been a proof text for a long, long time. I'll often go to Philippians 1.27 where it says, you know, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I'll pull that out and I'll go, look, the Bible says, it actually says that the way that we live ought to reflect the truth and the beauty of the gospel message. Now, this is a theme verse for the entire series. We'll probably keep coming back to it. But there are a couple of things that I want you to know that are specific to our church. One of the things that we prioritize around here is what we call gospel culture, meaning it is not enough to simply claim to believe the truth of the gospel. We want it to show up in the vibe of the community. We, we not only say that Jesus Christ is Lord, we not only affirm the truth of the gospel, we actually expect for it to trickle down into the ordinary stuff of how we interact with each other. So we want the good news of the gospel to inform the culture of our church, both as we gather on Sunday, as we gather in each other's homes throughout the week, and as we go about the life that God has assigned to us. We want gospel culture to dominate our experience. We also prioritize as a church, we prioritize gospel witnessing, meaning There are a lot of different ways to organize a church, a lot of different strategies. You can spend a lot of time and energy and money on gathering together and programming for that and having a great experience together. We have chosen as a church to prioritize not necessarily just the gathering. This is important. Us being together this morning, this is important. 
but we want to prioritize and value and resource equipping and training ordinary believers to leave from here and proclaim the good news of the gospel in every place that God sends us. So we want the gospel reality to so affect us that we can march out of here on a Sunday morning. You're not dismissed, you're sent. Go and be the church, please. And we can go commissioned by the Lord himself to represent him every place we might go. That's a big deal. That's why this series is important to me. It gives us a chance to think through how does the gospel shape our ordinary lives? Well, as I was studying Philippians chapter 1 this week and working my way through this paragraph, there were so many things about this paragraph that surprised me. I've looked at it over and over again throughout the course of my life in ministry, but spending time specifically in this paragraph has been a surprising thing for me this week. So I want to share with you some of those insights and some of those surprises. One of the commentators puts it like this. Philippians 1 verses 27 to 30 are something like a thesis for the entire letter. You guys remember thesis? You probably try to forget it, but you know, if you have to write a research paper, you have to have a claim. You have to have something that you're seeking to prove. And so you write this statement, and I don't know, when I did it, I would just put it on the front end, and then I'd spend the paper trying to articulate that that is true. This paragraph, some have noted, is kind of like a thesis statement. It's like Paul saying, here's what I'm going to talk to you about. These are the themes that you need to be aware of. This is the priority that I'm going to assign to you. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the letter teasing that out, showing you what it really looks like. So let's think through what is this paragraph communicating to us. Now, it's a lengthy one, so to simply read it again would maybe not be that productive, but let's try to boil it down to what is it saying. Paul, let me say it better. God is saying Christians should be willing to suffer opposition, hostility. They should be willing to suffer without fear and with unity in Christ. And by doing that, they communicate the beauty and the majesty of the message of Jesus Christ. We should be willing to suffer opposition and hostility without fear, with unity with one another. And by doing that, we're actually showing people the beauty and the majesty of the message of the gospel. So let's get to work. First off, we're told that this is something that we are to do. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying here, whatever happens, he's saying, listen up, this is what you need to be about. He's reflecting on his own personal experience. Earlier in chapter one, he talks about it. He says, look, I'm praying for you guys but he happens to be in prison. He's writing them from a prison cell and he's talking about his own experience and he's kind of reflecting on it and thinking through how it might shake out. He goes, look, I'm in prison, as you have heard, and I'm preaching Christ and I'm here for that very reason. And then some people are preaching Christ out of pure motives and some people are preaching Christ out of impure motives to try to get me in more trouble. But what do I make of that? I just rejoice that Christ is preached. Regardless of motives, I'm I'm excited that the name of Jesus Christ is being lifted high. And then he reflects on what, what his future might hold. He goes, okay, there's a chance that I might die. There's a chance that I might be martyred. But how would I think about that? I think that would actually be gain. If they take my life for my faith, that means I see my Lord immediately. I'm with him. To to die, that's 
gain. That's Christ. To, to, that's gain. Then he says, but I might live. I'm not sure. And if I live, how do I think about that? Well, that would also be advantageous because then I would be able to continue on with my ministry and I could be helpful to you. So then he comes up with this conclusion. I'm not sure how this is going to shake out, but regardless, it's a win-win for me. I could die. That'd be a win. I could live. That would be a win. So whatever happens, because I'm not sure. I've got a suspicion, though. I think I'll probably remain on in the body for your benefit. But then he turns the corner here and he says, but listen, regardless, whatever happens, here's what you need to know. This is what you need to be about. And this is a forceful way to introduce the concept. But he's saying, this is your assignment. Whatever happens, this one thing and this thing only, this is what you have to be about. If you're a follower of Christ, regardless of whether you're arrested or whether, you know, things get rough for you or whether I'm martyred for the faith, regardless, here's what you need to be working on. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. But he uses a really fascinating word here. In the Greek, it's a word, I'll try to pronounce it, I don't know Greek, is what they say. It's... uh, I say it out loud, not because I'm trying to show off or anything. I'm, I want you to hear the word, polituomai, because it's the word for, that we would get the word politics. He actually uses a word that means something about a civic responsibility. He's saying, whatever happens, I want you to live in a way that reveals your citizenship. Live in a manner worthy of your citizenship. So then I was asking the question this week, I was going, okay, Is Paul talking about the one thing he wants them to do, the church in Philippi, is to be good Philippians, right? Good Roman citizens. Philippi is a place that has uh, Roman rulership over it, uh, Roman jurisdiction over it. And so maybe he's just saying, hey, guys, no matter what happens, I want you to be good citizens. I want you to love your, your place. And I want you to do a good job at that. I don't think that's it, right? Is that why Paul would write from prison to a church and say, hey guys, be good citizens. Be good people. Come on. No, no, no. He's introducing a word that he will build out later on. He actually will say what he's talking about in chapter 3. He's talking not just about being a citizen of Rome or a citizen living in Philippi or being a good Philippian. He's talking about the fact that if you're a Christian, you have a new allegiance. You represent a new land. You have a new citizenship. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says it like this. He says, our citizenship is from heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, whatever happens, guys, I want you to live as citizens of heaven. I want you to reflect the reality of the king and his kingdom. The church, then, is meant to be an, a colony of heaven. It's meant to be the place where you can experience the reality of heaven. What it should feel like when you walk in here on a Sunday morning or you go to a small group and you're gathering together with other believers, what it should feel like is you've just walked into heaven's embassy. And you look at each other and you go, we are citizens of our king and his kingdom. And yes, we live here but we have some obligations to him. And we're going to live in such a way that is worthy of our king. We're going to run our decision-making through that grid of, will this reflect 
the beauty of the king and his kingdom. We're going to live in such a way that we're trying to communicate to people that heaven is real. We're behaving in such a way that when people experience the church, heaven feels non-ignorable. There is a king, he has a kingdom, he has a people, and we are that people. So Paul is saying, look, no matter what culture looks like, no matter how bad it gets in Philippi, no matter how much pressure is put on you guys, I want you to do this one thing. Here's your assignment. Live as citizens of the kingdom. Show people that God is real. So it's like the Lord is taking us up and he's saying, your life matters. Every single thing that you do matters. And here's why. The Lord is saying, because you represent me. Your, your life ought to reflect, Jesus is saying, what I'm like. So that's the kind of thing that we get excited about as a church. We're trying to help you recognize that the Lord is hijacking your life for his purposes. So we want to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Well, we don't do this alone. We do this together. The whole paragraph points in this direction. It's all written in the plural format. It's saying You don't do this in isolation. You don't do this as an individual even. This is something that we do together. Verse 27 reads like this. He says, so whether I'm able to visit you in person or I only hear a report about you, this is what I'll know. Verse 27 puts it like this, that you are standing firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. If you're living in a manner worthy of the gospel, that means that you're banding together with other believers in real time, in real space, and and the report will come back, whether it's an in-person visitation or whether it's just word of mouth. He's saying, look, if you're doing this, what I will know, the thing that will be true of you is that you are striving together for the sake of the gospel. You will be in this community of faith that is helping the world know something about God. You will be of one spirit and one mind, striving side by side. It's telling us that in the midst of opposition and hostility and persecution, what the church should be doing is linking arms together, saying, we have a job to do in this time and in this space. We are representing our king. It is very, very mission critical that we do this thing together that we present a unified front, that we are honoring the Lord himself and the unity that he brought about through his death, burial, and resurrection of gathering a people to himself, and they're different from one another. And the thing that makes them unified is not that they all think the same or look the same or act the same. The thing that unifies the people of God is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we need to band together and say, okay, no matter what comes down the pipe, We are God's people, and we are going to present a unified front. Now, the issue that I see here is just the issue of what this looks like in real time. Think about the last two years. Global pandemic, societal unrest, political upheaval, all kinds of different problems in our culture, and what did we find happened to our culture? It fragmented. It didn't unify. It didn't solidify around certain things. Sections of our our culture gathered together, but there was fragmentation. And then think about the church. What was the, how did the church fare in all of this? Did it do this or something else? It did something else. I'm grateful for for our particular church and the 
kindness of God that we've experienced in all of this. But if you look at the, if you look at the American church and how it, how it handled the last two years, a lot of what happened was fragmentation. It was looking at, the, looking at what's going on in the world and going, you know what? I want to be around people who think like me. And I will make those adjustments accordingly. And the church then has divided, instead of gathering together and presenting a unified front around the Lord and around his saving work, we've gathered around secondary issues. I'm trying to be careful here, but I know I'm ruffling feathers. But a lot of people have made secondary issues primary, and they say, this is what matters. And in fact, we spiritualize it and we say things like this. I'm not even sure you could be a Christian if you don't agree with me on this. And I would say that is, that's actually flirting with heresy. That's actually suggesting, or maybe even flat out saying, what Christ did is not enough. You actually have to go beyond that and agree with me on other things too. And so we need to be careful because that is the experience that we have seen in the last two years. But this text is reminding us, no, 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 the church has something far greater to be concerned with the king and his kingdom. And he is gathering together people who are different from one another, and we need that. We need that. We need each other. We need to be careful of looking around here and going, I don't know about these scrubs. I don't know if I can commit to them. No, no, no. The Bible is telling us this is your, this is your people. This is the church that God has placed you in. Well, you might not take my word for it, so maybe we should listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor and a martyr and a prophet and a spy, to borrow one subtitle of a biography. He was all these different things, but he was serving during the time of Nazi Germany. And uh, he was incarcerated for his faith and placed in a concentration camp. And then he was executed right, right before the concentration camp was liberated. He was only 28 years old. First time I was introduced to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was 28, and, and it just it startled me. But he was martyred for his faith, and he wrote what I perceive to be one of the most important books on Christian community called Life Together. And he talks about some stuff that I don't hear in a lot of other places, and he says, listen, you had better be careful about lusting after the community that you don't have to the neglect of the one that you actually do. He puts it like this. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. To look at Christian community and go, uh, there's got to be something better out there for me than this, than these people. Bonhoeffer is saying, well, be careful about that because that reveals that you don't want the real thing. He goes on to say, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes the destroyer of the latter. No matter how he says it like this, even though his personal intentions be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. If you want something that you don't have and you're longing for that tribe of people that you, that you all think the same and you want that more than the real thing, Bonhoeffer's saying, be careful. That desire could actually do damage to the reality. So he's warning us here about the importance of embracing the gift that God has given to us. I know this is really hard to do right now because of the internet. What do we do? Uh, we watch sermons from guys we like better than me, and I know none of you do that ever, but we watch these other churches, these other leaders, and we go, man, if I lived there, that would be amazing. But here, 
oh, I'm making do, right? And Bonhoeffer is reminding us, that's a very, very dangerous position to have. It's like a member in a family going, I don't know about my family. I wish I had a different one, right? Even that articulation of that feeling is damaging to the family. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful about separating from one another. I believe this is a clarion call to press into the church, to say these relationships matter. These connections matter. Not just attending together, but opening our tables to each other and spending time together and loving each other in real time. I think all of that is the mission of the church. And we need to be careful about spiritualizing our desire to separate because Bonhoeffer in another place, he says, this is, this is one of the features of sin. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. And the more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it and the more disastrous is his isolation. Sometimes we look at the church and we go, I think I'd be better off alone. And I think the answer from scripture is, no, you wouldn't. You might think you would, but you'd actually be setting yourself up for disaster. So this is reminding us that as opposition comes, as hostility comes, as suffering and persecution comes, it is imperative that we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ by banding together and saying we're different from each other. We don't agree on everything. That's actually a good thing. That actually brings more glory to Christ because he died for us. Well, then we find out that this community should be fearless. Verse 28 goes on to say, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This community is supposed to band together and it'll be a testimony to the reality of who they are. And he says, and you will not be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And it's saying you won't be startled. You won't be easily startled. It's actually the word for a horse being spooked. Like a horse being spooked and then stampeding and doing all of that. We had, we had this little pony uh, when I was a kid at the tree farm. We had this pony called Frosty. I hate that pony. Frosty <laughs> was easily spooked. And so one time I tried to ride Frosty and something spooked Frosty and Frosty just took off and I'm yanking on the reins and I'm whoa whoa you know I'm doing everything that I can but but Frosty is freaking out and running through fields and running under low-hanging tree branches and I'm getting beaten up and Frosty's getting beaten up and 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 I get off the horse and I'm like I'm good I never have to ride a horse again um but the illustration is that when opposition comes that's how a lot of people behave like a startled horse and they do more damage and more chaos in the aftermath of being startled than a horsefly bite or whatever it is that might be spooking them in the first place. We need to be a people who are not easily startled. When you, when you find out about a new development of what's going on in the world, you're not easily phased. You're not easily rattled or shaken. The church is supposed to be a people who are resilient, who are fearless, so we might walk around and ask people, what are the things that you're most fearful of? And we could do man-on-the-street interviews and put microphones in people's faces and say, what do you worry about? What are you fearful of? And somebody might say, well, I'm fearful of the economy, of what that's going to look like. I'm really terrified about that. And we could say, okay, yeah, I totally understand. Or I'm fearful about the political landscape, to be honest, of 
how people are interacting around these things and how divided we truly are. I'm worried about the outcome that this might bring. Or somebody might say, hey, I'm fearful for health. Like this is such a, such a fragile thing, this health that we have. I could get in, in an injury and lose my faculty. I could be exposed to something and get very ill or die. I could have cancer. I, I worry about my health. And we could say, yeah, I totally get that. Or they might say, I worry for my family. I worry about my, the relationships that are dearest to me and what would happen if, if anything were to happen to any of them. And I'm not trying to minimize or diminish any of those legitimate and real concerns, but I would say this, Christians ought to actually deal with all of those things different. The economy, my father owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's never under-resourced. When it comes to the political landscape, you can look at Psalm chapter 2, where the nations and the kings rise up and they mock the Lord. They, they resist his work. But who is he? Lord of lords, king of kings. He, he laughs at people's attempt to buck his leadership. We don't have to worry about the political landscape. What about health? Well, we know even when we die, we will rise. That he one day will do away with all sickness and death and ailment for his own glory. What about our families? We, we know that God is able to take care of those whom we love, and he loves them even more than us. So Christians should be a fearless people. And you go, okay, dude, that sounds pretty pie in the sky. Nobody does that. Nobody walks around thinking about those very real concerns and is kind of dismissive about them in the way that you just described. Nobody really does that, except for Paul in this passage where he's able to say things exactly like that, but he's in the Bible. Let's not even include him. Let me give you a real-time example of a guy named John Chrysostom. Now, I've shared this before, but it's worth repeating. In the fourth century, there was a preacher who was being opposed by an empress, and she threatened him in a variety of different ways, and the interaction is fascinating. She threatens to banish him, and he says, you cannot banish me. She's the empress. She has all authority. She has all ability to do these things. But he says, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. And then she says, well, then I'll kill you, said the empress. And he says, no, you cannot. My life is hid with Christ in God. She's getting more and more furious as the conversation goes on. And she says, well, then I'll take away your treasures. And he says, no, you can't do that. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there also. She says, well, I'll drive you away from your family and your friends and you'll have no one left. And he says, you can't even do that. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. There's a, there's a reality about being a Christian where come what may, we're able to say, we're going to be just fine. We don't have to fear because we know the God to whom we belong and the God that we serve, and we know his ability to care for us. Nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? We do not need to fear. There were conspiracies in the ancient Near East, and God said this through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5, do not fear what they fear. We look at the world 
and we understand that it might be growing in hostility to Christianity, what is our response? With a unified front, we are striving together for the faith of the gospel, and we are fearful of nothing. Let's be those kinds of people. Well, one of the things that surprised me here is the reality of suffering. We know as we read it that there's opposition. There are people who have arrested Paul. There's a culture in Philippi that's hostile to Christianity. There's a call to contend for the faith, to strive together. So that means there's something opposing them. But then in verse 29, we find out this very surprising feature of the text. It says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for him. It's been granted. I remember a buddy of mine reading that for the very first time. He looked up from the Bible, he looked at me, and he goes, What is this? Have you seen this? What does that even mean? It's been granted to me to suffer? No, thank you. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. If you're familiar with my story, back in 2007, when I felt like God gave me my assignment, he he kind of sketched out what it was going to look like to do ministry for him. It involved things like local church work and expository preaching and a call to frontier missions and and all these different things. But one of the features that God said, this is going to be really, really important in the days ahead. We have to create a people who have a theology of suffering. The Bible presents suffering as a normal experience for Christians. It is normal. And so this word here, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. This is, this is crazy. It's not just like God's like, I don't know what to do with this. Here you go. Like when Harrison comes up to me with his trash, Hey, Dad, here. And he just gives me wrappers. What am I supposed to do with this? I don't know. Figure it out. It's not like God is doing that with us. Like, oh, there's suffering here. Here, you guys take it. It's given to you. No, no, no. The word here is actually the same word for grace. This is a grace of God. It has been graced to you. It's a gift that God gives to us that we might suffer for his namesake. You go, okay, dude, this sounds weird. But the Lord... The Lord taught this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. But listen, you better be ready for it. In fact, the Lord himself is prepping us. In this world, as long as you're alive, there's trouble. Are you prepared for that? The early church was strengthened with words like this in Acts 14, 22. Uh, They were experiencing hostility and opposition and persecution and the team came back through to the churches that they helped to plant and they encouraged them saying things like this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They didn't qualify it. Like, oh, that's the track for super Christians. Like if you're really mature, you might go through hardships. No, they just said to the church, listen, this is the gig. You must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. The New Testament all over the place says things like this. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that you're going through. Don't be surprised by suffering as if that's a weird thing. It might feel weird to us as American Christians, but from the perspective of the Bible or the global church, it is normal. Do not be surprised by these things. Be prepared for them. So we need to be a people who are ready to suffer and will be in good company. Look at verse 30. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, And now hear that I still have. 
writing from prison, incarcerated for his faith, beaten over and over again. And he says, you're going through what I've been through and what I'm still going through. You are in good company. So if it is a gift from God, then here's what we at least have to do. We have to receive it. If it is a grace of God given to us, then we should willingly accept it. Instead of resisting and bemoaning suffering, we can receive it, trusting that God can use it for good. So let's talk about that. Here's the final thing I want to show you. When the church does this, it, gets, it gives evidence of the reality of the gospel in a lot of different ways. It gives evidence to spiritual leaders. Look at what he says. In verse 27, he says, if you're doing this, then whether I come and see you or only hear of you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. If you're living in a manner worthy of the gospel and you're suffering and you're unfrightened by it and you've got this gospel resolve about you and you're linking arms with other believers and you're facing opposition with a fearlessness, if you're doing that, Paul says, if I hear about that or if I come and observe it, I'm going to be pretty excited. I'm going to know. For me personally, as I think about Park City Church and you guys, as I think about our, our church people and I, I think about the reality of you guys living this stuff out, if you, if you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel, what am I going to do? At night, I'm going to lay down my head on my pillow with a big grin on my face, and I'm going to be able to say, they're doing it. They're real. They're suffering for the name's sake, and they are honoring the Lord himself. Citizens of heaven. It's evidence to Paul. It's also evidence to opponents. Look at verse 28. It says, This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. I was listening to Ray Ortland preach on this uh, subject here, and he says, let me, let me help you out here. I'll just ask a quick question. He says, How's Rome doing? How's the empire of Rome doing? Are they still on top of the world? You see, your faithfulness to Christ is evidence even to your opponents. The reality of your commitment to Christ, it's evidence that if they're going to resist the way of God, they are bringing destruction on themselves. But your faithfulness is evidence not only to spiritual leaders, but also to opponents and finally to yourself. And it says, and you will be saved and that by God. When you're living this thing out, and you're suffering, and you're happy, you're joyful about what God is doing, then you'll be able to say, guys, this is crazy. God gave me this grace of suffering for his namesake, and I'm doing it. This is the real deal. You will have a confidence that the Lord himself will give you. And when you're doing that, it's a testimony to the watching world. I'll show you a few different examples. Remember when the Lord himself was arrested, stripped naked, mocked. They hung him on the cross, and the soldiers were, they they mocked him, they spit on him, they plucked out his beard, and he didn't retaliate. He just kind of calmly went to the cross. And the soldiers watched as those final breaths were offered up. And the Lord says, it is finished. And one of the soldiers, watching this suffering, And watching the fearlessness of this individual, he comes to the conclusion after hearing the Lord pray things like this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he comes to the conclusion, he is the Son of God. He observes the suffering, 
the resilience of this individual, and he comes to the conclusion, this is God incarnate. Or how about the Apostle Paul as he's arrested, flogged, he's imprisoned for his faith. I was reading it this week. There's a person who's assigned watching over them, a prison guard, and they're in the middle of the the prison, and they're in stocks and chains, and, and about midnight, as the Bible tells us, they start singing. They're praying, and they're singing hymns. They're worshiping God. And then, I don't remember the exact details, but the chains fall off, and the doors fly open. It's a work of God, quite obviously. And the person who has the assignment of watching Paul is, feels in big trouble. Like, I really screwed up here. And he pulls out his sword, and he's going to take his own life. And Paul says, hold on here. We're all still accounted for. You, you don't have to worry for your life. And he says, brothers, what do I need to do to be saved? He observes the suffering of these individuals and the resilience with which they conduct themselves and the joy that they have in the midst of trial and difficulty. And he says, whatever they have, I want that. That's what suffering can do. It can be a testimony of God's goodness. It communicates to the world, you have an allegiance to a king who he himself was crucified and yet is risen. Your greatest allegiance is not to your comfort or not to your own advantage, but your greatest allegiance is to glorifying your your king. And you can suffer then with fearlessness and resilience. Well, let's rehearse what we've looked at then. Christians should be a people who show their commitment to Christ by being willing to suffer opposition and hostility without fear and with unity in Christ. By doing this, we communicate the beauty of the gospel message and the hope that we profess. By living out our faith in a manner worthy of the gospel, people are able to see God is real and heaven is not ignorable. You are a citizen of heaven. Behave accordingly. You have a community of believers band arms together so that we might do this thing successfully. Let's strive together for the sake of the gospel message. You can be fearless, not easily startled, because you have a God in heaven who's watching over you. You will be persecuted. It's a grace that God assigns to us. But even going through that, God will be glorified in us. Let's honor him. Let's live in a manner worthy of that gospel. Amen. Lord, we pray right now that you would help each and every one of us embrace this high calling, that this thing and this thing only would be the the key feature of our lives, that we want to live as citizens of heaven, communicating the beauty and the majesty of our King to all who will see, to all who will listen. Let our lives be a testimony to his goodness. We pray in his name. Amen.